0: You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren.
1: Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm at the controls, Al Warren. Now it's a full house today, but everybody is social distancing. Uh, we got uh, John uh, Cop- Copenhaver. <laughs> I can't say your name hey. anymore. Just... Hey, Al. <laughs> we got John. Okay, and uh, I'm going to get our announcer to say it now. Like, that's, that's who you like the new, the new announcer, so she can do it. I, I... Yeah, she says it. She says it nicely. Yeah, yeah. She does a good job. I, I can't. I don't know why. I've been on the radio twenty. I I can't say anything. I'm just. And then of course uh, we've got uh, making the drinks, the cocktails. The one with, that needs a new door carpet. Uh, David yeah. Martino. That was just present. You should be ashamed of yourself. I am. You? I am absolutely ashamed. I'm going to put that all over the internet. You know. <laughs> yeah. I, that's right. Everyone's going to see that. Looks like a dog ate his front door now. <laughs> Oh my, boy! My God, it's embarrassing. It really is. Yeah. So you're going. It's terrible. You're going to be doing <laughs> the dishes next. Uh, <laughs> now today we've got a um, special guest. We've got a, a New York Times best-selling author, and she's got a newer book out. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about her work beforehand, and all sorts of things. So, uh, Alma Katsu, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So you're awake now. Um, <laughs> so you had, uh, without, get, well, you know, we don't have to get into the details too much, but you've had a, a history as uh, working for the CIA
0: and I've had a history. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, it was yeah, over 30 years in the intelligence business, not only CIA but NSA too, which will probably make half your listeners turn off. Uh, oh, right
1: yeah. Now. No, no. I'll, I'll I'll get I'll get double. I'll get 400 hate mails, you know, working for MK Ultra and all that sort of stuff. Um we're paid. Uh, so but you got into that, you did that for 30 years. So um after you've left the agency, you've gotten into writing, and that, that's that's quite a change. And I noticed primarily you were writing more of a horror fiction style of writing. Um, what was that? What was that transition for you? Like, how did it go from CIA to horror fiction?
0: Well, I'll tell you, it's even messier than that because oh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> part of the reason why I just had my first um, spy novel come out this year is because I only retired a few years ago. I'd actually been writing um, the other novels. I had five novels before Red Widow uh, while I was still working. I sold my first book at 50 uh, as, <laughs> as I was starting to look at the end of the career. But, um, you know, it's really hard to write um, an a, a espionage novel while you're still in the business. And so, you know, I think that's part of the reason why I just sort of avoided it. But once I uh, retired, I was talking to my editor at Putnam and she really encouraged me to go for it. It's something I'd always wanted to do, but wasn't quite sure actually that I could do it. (laughs) So,
1: um, well, well, what was it that you weren't sure of? Was it the actual writing skills itself or was it just the storyline? Like what was it that gave you hesitation?
0: Well, you know, so there's, it's a complicated relationship, I think between writing about a profession when you're in the profession, and I'm sure it applies to a lot of professions, but in for intelligence in particular, you know, one of the things that that It never sat right with me and doesn't sit right with a lot of of my friends in the business is, you know, sort of the way that we're portrayed. And as a writer, I understand why it's, you know, because books have to have drama and they have to follow, you know, a certain arc that people sort of expect. And, you know, it can't be too fussy or or hard to follow or that sort of thing. But those are all (laughs) sort of baked into the intelligence work. You know, I tell people, if you look at the typical scope of um, a spy novel, you know, it's usually a, a lone hero, right? Oftentimes a brooder or an outsider or something who, you know, no one else can, can do this. He's got to be the one that's going to take down the villain. And so, you know, they you're barreling through all of these twists and turns to get, you know, and then it's like a wrestling match at the end with between the, you know, the antagonist and the protagonist, and he's like throwing the person up against the wall and taking the bomb and throwing it out the window and narrowly averting disaster. And in the real life, we would call that an intelligence failure, (laughs) because you want to avoid getting to that, you know, sort of um, court of last resort, so to speak, you know, or a situation where only one person can save the day. If you're, if you do it right, you know, you're coming up with a plan that you know you people will never know there was you know some kind of horrible disaster that was that we averted and so anyway, I just, you know, when you're a professional and you have a lot of pride in your work, it just, you know, kind of rubs you the wrong way to think that that's how I'm going to have to portray it for the public. So it took me a long while to come up with an idea for a story that I thought would do both, that would both be sort of true to, to what the job's like for professionals, but also would sort of meet the expectation of modern um, audiences.
1: So you're, you're telling me that the 30 years that you were in with this, with the Intelligence agencies, um, you didn't look like Angelina Jolie running around with big heels. God, I wish I looked. Like <laughs> and, and karate chopping everyone. <laughs> like you I, I,
0: yeah, gave up big heels a long time ago. And towards the end, I think about an inch and a half was all I could handle. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's that's it's it's kind of funny. So so I think that's I think that's really a key point there for me, especially when you say. Um, How the CIA, for instance, or NSA or any of the groups are portrayed in movies, they're always looked at as, uh, you know, godlike, you know, James Bond sort of characters are they can do anything. Um, So that's, I guess there's, there's quite an exaggeration. Do you think anybody out there kind of displays what uh, uh, the CIA agents really look like?
0: Oh, well, that's interesting. I mean, Uh, You know, there's um, one of the things that happened with Red Widow is um, we actually did Fox picked it up for TV series. So I was told to look at all of the, um, you know, more contemporary, you know, spy shows and stuff on TV. So I could tell producers what worked and what didn't work because I kind of avoided them uh, to a degree, I think, in a lot of um, folks in the business You know, they either watch these types of things and they sort of, you know, just enjoy them for what it's worth or they avoid them. I was one of the avoiders. So there have been a few shows recently that have been pretty good. The Americans is excellent, by the way. And Joe Weisberg did a brilliant thing in setting it back in the 80s because that freed him up from worrying about, you know, getting on the wrong side of pre-publication review. Um, you know, by r- trying to reveal too much. So he was actually able to be very true to to what the tradecraft was like back then, then and, you know, what the job was like without, um, you know, running into trouble. And it's not so changed from today. I mean, the technology certainly has changed, but sort of the basics of tradecraft, <laughs> you know, trying not to get caught, um, you know, disguises are not like Mission Impossible. They're more like the Americans, you know, where you're just... Trying to get through, get past, you know, the, the more casual observer, you know, you're. although that's changing a little bit with facial recognition technology and that sort of thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's a few things out there that are that are a bit more true to life when you said what CIA officers look like, it kind of threw me for a minute because I used to joke around at the agency, you know, having grown up at NSA where they're all nerds and dweebs, um, <laughs> that by comparison, they hire attractive people at CIA because, you know, you generally will tell attractive people more than you'll tell, you know, you'll trust them, you'll relax around them a little bit more than you will around um, unattractive people.
1: Yeah, well, no, that's true. Yep. I mean, they, they've been after me to, to work for them for years.
0: I'm surprised that
1: you're not, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, too much of a bad history, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Something about me, you know. Being... I, I, I Now, I noticed that you have a Russia theme to this book. Um, is that still kind of um, the enemy, so to speak?
0: Well, I, You know, it might depend on who you ask. You know, America <laughs> has a lot of yeah. adversaries <laughs> out there. Um, yeah and i'm not a i'm not a russian expert which surprises some people my um you know my career was divided up over two things one uh, and this will just put all of your listeners right to sleep the last 12 years or so has been in emerging technologies but before that i did what's known as complex contingency operations we won't go into that but it's basically multilateral affairs and so you know i was always brushing up against um russians or you know russian um uh, foreign policy and, and defense policy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I was just familiar enough with it. But I'm going to go back to that emerging technologies part, because uh, most of the, the the technical work I did had to do with social media research. So I've been working with a lot of top researchers, um, looking at disinformation campaigns for a long time. And so I'm here to tell you, yes, Russia is <laughs> still <laughs> a, a pretty substantial <laughs> enemy
1: yeah it's pretty interesting, but there must be a a, a line that's what this mu- i don't know you tell me wouldn't it be the hardest thing to to really tell us what's going on, so to speak? I mean, because when you're writing a book like this and you've got Russia involved and you've got you know CIA involved you've got all this stuff going on um how how truthful can you be?
0: I guess it depends on, um, you know, like all all tradecraft is a little sleight of hand, right? What you want to reveal and what you want to hide. And so if you're good, you can make the stuff you reveal like so distracting that people might not notice the things you're hiding. So, you know, I think what you're referring to are sources and methods. Those are the things that any intelligence agency protects the most, right? They're, and if you're if you've been um, given access to them, like people with security clearances do, you know, you're not allowed to disclose any classified sources or methods. And those are the things that people think they wanna learn. But um, I think, at least in my limited experience so far, I think they're happy enough uh, just sort of setting the scene and sort of providing um, glimpses into how it works. But, you know, spy novels, like any story, you know, they're really very character-based. And I think if you provide, you know, a really satisfying character-driven story, that's what most people are looking for with a little embellishment of, you know, what the, you know, little taste of what the trade crafts like, or, you know, what I really try to provide is a lot of a bigger taste of what the culture is really like, what it's like to really do the job as opposed to the technical parts of it.
1: Did you no, have to the- get... Go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Did you have to get um, uh, Red Widow cleared by the CIA or NSA before you could have it published?
0: By CIA, yes. Luckily, uh, a few years back, the agencies did a very humane thing where they decided that if you um, if you're one of the oddballs like me who worked for more than one agency, you wouldn't have to have your work cleared by every single agency. You could turn it into one And they were supposed to look for the equities of the other agencies. Now, whether they do or not, I have no idea. CIA, (laughs) uh, I I handed it to CIA because obviously it's about CIA. And it was up to them to look out for NSA equities. So it did go into the pre-publication office for review. And I'm really happy and amazed to say that they asked for no changes to the manuscript. And in my experience, this is like how tightly they restrict things, it swings back and forth on a pendulum. Like sometimes they're, they're crazy. Like they won't let you use terms that are in very, very wide use, you know, popular usage and other times like now that they seem to have a more realistic outlook on what they, I guess maybe because so many books now, nonfiction books have been put out by uh, former agency employees and, and other folks from elsewhere in the intelligence community too, that, there's just so much more uh, knowledge out there right now. I'm Right now, I'm reading a book called Damascus Station, which was written by a CIA analyst, Dave McCluskey And it's coming out in October, I think. And he was a Syrian analyst. And I am amazed at what they let him <laughs> put in the book. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, one of the things that I really loved about Um, Red Widow was that you made women really central to the story. I mean, your protagonists, I guess you have two of them, are really, you know, the drivers of the story. Was that a conscious choice in your part? Or, um, I mean, I haven't read much of of that in spy fiction before. So I'm just curious about those choices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that I'd always found a little dissatisfying about a Mm -hmm. lot of spy fiction Um, Because even though there certainly are men in the business, there's a lot of women too. I mean, I can't give you exact numbers, but in my experience, we're about half. Um, And half in everything, you know, case officers, technical officers, managers, and, you know, there's been, I've worked with a lot of Really, really competent, fine, outstanding women in every field, and yet we weren't seeing ourselves being represented in in the popular culture so much. It seemed very male centered, and while that's not bad, I you know I just thought it was owed to women to see ourselves being represented um, accurately in something. And I have to say, the response I, I really didn't expect this kind of response. I thought it would be very dismissed as you know, not not real spy fiction, because it wasn't doing the things that, you know, a James, um, a James Bond or a, a Jason Bourne, you know, Ted Cruz's favorite CIA agent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he said that today. It's
1: we live in a weird but world. But that kind of
0: goes to the yeah. point, right? Then yeah. when people think of intelligence professional, that's what they think of. I'm sorry to tell you <laughs> that actually is not what goes on in the intelligence business.
1: You mean they all don't look like Jason Bourne?
0: Right. They're not all super <laughs> human assassins who do parkour. I mean, oh,
1: you know, well, just, honestly, well, now, now was that the I best really, you could do? Yeah, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I thought, well, somebody's got to make the coffee in the office, right? So There's
0: a lot of that <laughs> going on. I had to laugh about it. I was going through the book, you know, after it was put to bed and, you know, and how much coffee drinking there is, but it's true. And and part of the reason is it's one of the few excuses you have to get up and get away from your desk and take a
1: break. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a covert operation getting coffee. Um, <laughs> hey, so so who who is Lindsay Duncan, for instance? Like who who is that?
0: Well, you know, she that character is sort of based on you know a, a type of officer that I was seeing, you know, especially as I was getting towards retirement age, and um, you know, and I'd spent a year too as a recruiter for the agency, and you just see these young women who come in who are extremely bright and their hearts in the right place and they're very patriotic and they just want to do the best job they can, and you know maybe they don't see the pitfalls in the office you know, until they, they get burned a few times. And then they realize, you know, that there's another game going on there that they, they better learn to play. You know, they're a little I- idealistic when they first go in. Um, you know, so people have asked me, is that me? No, <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> I'm the older, bitter uh, person <laughs> who's been around for a long time and is it's been burned really bad, yeah. and uh,
1: got a grudge. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, does that make you Teresa the red yeah, widow?
0: <laughs> much <more like> <laughs> and the other interesting thing is that whole book is actually based on a true case. Uh, it's just that it's been changed a lot so that it wouldn't be recognized. Because what happened is actually never been publicly associated with the agency, but it is an actually well-known case. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, but the bad guy in it is based on a real person, someone that I know.
1: (laughs) Jason Bourne.
0: Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) He wishes he were Jason Bourne. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you.
1: Um, Well, that's really, it's really interesting. So um, being an ex-agent with the last years, especially the last four or five years, and the climate in the political world, let's just say, or even in the country in common, about agencies, you know, CIA, FBI, and all that. It's been kind of a little bit more negative than probably definitely should be. Um, Has that affected your life?
0: Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, if you look back at the things that a lot of senior intelligence folks who were also retired or, you know, whatever um, did during the last administration, like the number of times they signed their names (laughs) to statements, you know, sort of decrying what was happening, um, you know, gives you an example, just, you know, kind of points out how, how extraordinarily weird that time was in some ways I was happy to be out of the business because my head would have exploded. I mean, you know, especially when you get kind of towards the end of your career and you've been through this a little bit, you understand, you know, that, you know, when you take the job, you if you didn't know it going in, you you're acclimated to it very soon. You know, we serve people in the intelligence business, serve the American people, right? But the American people... Tell us what they want through the people they elect, and so when you're in the situation that we had in the last administration, you know you're really in this bind. I'm sure there were people in the intelligence community that helped the information that would have you know blown a lot of the bullshit right out of the water, but you can't you can't just give it away to the public, right? There are channels you go through, but you know there's a lot of constraints on that too. At the end of the day. The agencies themselves have to, you know, come to a determinate of what's legal and proper. And, you know, there's a reason why certain secrets never get out. But anyway, you know, I'm sure people who were in still working at the time were really just finding themselves in a terrible, terrible bind. Um, So for me, in some ways, it was it was better. I still have a clearance because I'm still a consultant back to the government and so, I was finding myself biting my lip a lot, but now that I'm really close to getting out hundred percent, I've been a little more free with my criticisms.
1: Do you ever really get out?
0: <laughs> oh, let's hope so. In <laughs> yeah, the movies careful, they never though, get out they I've known some it... people
1: who've ended up in jail, so you know you oh, have to boy. really be, you can't get too free you know with those secrets yeah, well yeah, yeah, i would I would imagine that. that does does that put a little fear in in the back of your mind? In, in day-to-day life like
0: day-to-day life not so much because i first of all i moved away from dc and i live in a, on a mountaintop in west virginia uh, john knows all about it <laughs> so while there are lovely lovely people out here i don't feel like you know like somebody could sneak up on me or something like that <laughs> um, I, although i suppose they could um well john's a russian I, asset there's only one or two here that i'm actually concerned about but um
1: (laughs) that's confidential
0: and i think john knows who i'm talking about but um (laughs) yeah no so not so much not so much um you know after a while you kind of get you kind of know where the line is that you shouldn't be you know stepping over so yeah no i'm really looking forward to the day when i'm totally out of it because Then I can smoke pot. I've never smoked pot in my entire life, and I've been shooting.
1: Well, it's not that big a deal anyway. But uh, uh, but you mean you can't smoke pot? Like why? I mean, it's isn't it? I guess it's not legal. Totally, it's still not legal. It's still a federal
0: offense.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, that's that's we. So how many – do you want to make this into a regular – because you were doing horror fiction, right? And then now you've gone into this kind of spy thriller novel. Is this something you want to continue? Well,
0: I hope so. We've got the TV show, which um, is in very active development as we speak. And then we just – I just uh, signed a contract for the second book, Red London, and just started doing the deep research today. Woo, what a pain. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, then there's the historical horror. It's kind of weird. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. The next book that uh, will be published with my name on it will be historical horror, and it's The Fervor, and it has to do with the Japanese internment uh, during World War II, which is kind of uh, kind of personal for me because my husband's family was interned, and a lot of my friends' families were interned, and so I know a lot about it. And it certainly is a horrible situation. So, um, so that's the next one. But then after that, and then uh, I guess the next Red London is under contract. But then who knows what'll happen? And I guess it'll just depend on how well things go.
1: Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty. So, who's gonna play uh, the character? Is it like Queen Latifah or? <laughs>
0: You know, I've heard some, all kinds of names bannered about, but I guess you don't really know until uh, we're at the pilot stage right now where we're hoping to get uh, the green light to go ahead with the pilot. And then I guess the names really start flying
1: around. So this is a pretty, this is, this is taking place in modern times, right?
0: Yes. Well, fairly modern. Yeah.
1: Are you going to, are you going to bring in modern problems that we've faced as well? um, you know, like not necessarily Trump, I mean that, but, um, but like with the pandemic and things like that, do you, do you incorporate that into your books or do you think you will?
0: Well, I don't, the yeah. pandemic, that's a tough one, right? Like if the timeline sort of catches up, I think Red Widow is more or less set in 2018. So yeah, if the timeline catches up, I guess that, I think that's a question for all writers that we're going to have to Think about. Um, it would certainly complicate things in spy novel. <laughs> however, because, you know, in real life, there was a lot of people being forced to just stay home. They didn't even um, telework because, you know, they were very worried about the security of any, uh, you know, channels they tried to set up. So that would be a pretty boring novel. But um, yeah, I mean, and that's like a perennial question, I think, with spy thrillers. How technical is And detailed you want it to be because you lose a lot of readers if you just get too bogged down in the weeds, you know, not only of technology, but even of the, you know, the various uh, political situations you might be trying to, um, you know, trying to cover in your book. For instance, I I think there's a fascinating story yet to be told with what's been happened, what happened with disinformation, but it's a very complicated story. And I think a lot of people just kind of tune out after the first, you know, couple steps.
1: Yeah. And I don't think that story's over. I don't think that's done. I think it's still going on and uh, it's still something to be worried about.
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's morphed in ways, too, that if you were only familiar with what the early discoveries were, you might be surprised at how sophisticated it's become. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
1: Yeah, why? Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Actually, uh, the stories I hear uh, every day make me. Um, no, I I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you say deep research, where, where, what does that mean to you, and how long does that take you?
0: Well, I shouldn't joke. I mean, so with the historical horrors, there's a lot of research. For instance, the uh, deep, which was about the Titanic. Was huge. I mean, there were twenty three hundred passenger and crew on the book, and I actually read a thumbnail bio for each and every one of them in order to make a determination, like you know, which characters, I people, I wanted to pull in to become characters in the book. You know, and I go through and make very detailed timelines and and all all kinds of stuff, but I do them kind of quick. And this is what really shocks people because, but ah, I was a research analyst basically for thirty years, so you get very comfortable doing research, even for you know really big projects. So it doesn't daunt me too much. But I got I have to say, you know, people have asked me where the was Red Widow hard to write, and the answer is hell no, because <laughs> you know I just spent thirty years doing this. It was actually kind of easy and fun compared to the Titanic. So, you know, when I came up with the plot points, it was like, okay, I know exactly in this situation, this is what the options would be, and I'm going to choose this option. So for the next book, I'm getting a little bit deeper into the oligarch story, and that's not one that I'm super familiar with. So I'm having to do a bit more research than lazy me did. (laughs) so that's i'm kind of joking it's just like three books right i just spent the morning reading a bunch of articles to get an idea of like which books i wanted to use for deeper dives and lazy me is going to have to read three books (laughs) yeah (laughs) and maybe go to london i haven't decided yet
1: that's a tough one Um, (laughs) hey so so what when when someone picks up red widow and they take it home and read it at the end of the book what is it you want them to take away from it
0: I want them to understand that the, you know, for everything they see in in popular culture about the spy business, it actually is kind of a singular profession that has, you know, these, um, these challenges and kind of, you know, drawbacks that you may not really think about. You know, popular culture makes it look so glamorous and everything. But it's really tough, especially... At CIA, you know, the business of CIA is human intelligence, and that means it's information that a human gets from another human. Like all the technical stuff is, mo- is kind of more or less the, the purview of other agencies. You know, what CIA does is it finds individuals who has access to information that we need, and these case officers or operations officers convince them to give up that information. And, and what that means is those case officers are really good at manipulating other people. They are the best manipulators in the world. And while most of them are wonderful professionals who can control that, there's a, a small percentage of them kind of get lost, um, morally lost. And they will turn that on their coworkers. They'll turn it on their spouses. They'll turn it on their children, their neighbors. And, um, you know, almost everyone who works at CIA probably will experience it once in their career. I did. And I'm here to tell you, it's like being dropped in a shark tank. (laughs) It is very bad and very scary. And when your management does nothing to help you, it's even worse. So, you know, that's just like one glimpse of the types of challenges that, that you face when you go into the profession. And so, like I said, though, you know, by and large people in intelligence, you know, are extremely patriotic, they do this for the American people, they really don't do it for money. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and it is a fascinating job and you get exposed, you get the, the opportunity to do things that you just can't imagine, just can't imagine. It's, it's amazing career field, but, you know, one that also takes
1: a toll. I just wanted to go back to um, horror for just one second, Uh, since you've written historical horror. um, You know, I came of age in the 80s during, you know, the first horror boom, where, you know, the market had imploded by 94. And I was just wondering, do you think horror fiction is making a comeback uh, within the mainstream?
0: Oh, I definitely do. I think we're starting to kind of enter a new golden age of horror. And part of that is because what people perceive of of as horror has sort of broadened. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of what we call horror adjacent now, where you're getting stories that are, um, you know, they kind of sometimes straddle psychological suspense you know, and have those horror elements. If you talk to the Horror Writers Association, they say that horror isn't a genre, it's a feeling. So any story that can kind of conjure up, make you have those feelings of dread, um, you know, could technically classify as horror. So, you know, you get, you know, these uh, serial killer stories and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Last year or so, I was asked to read a lot of books for blurbs That some people probably wouldn't even think of as horror, but it was, you know, it might raise the possibility, is there a supernatural thing at play, or is it something, you know, that that's much more human. It's almost always something much more human. I mean, humanity is the basis of most of our horrors. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm so bleak, though.
1: Alma, <laughs> um, do you think there's uh you know this is sort of more of a I guess craft question, but do you think there's a difference in the way that you structure a horror plot versus a thriller? Did you find a difference in your process or or not? Do you feel they're sort of similar?
0: I think some people would tell you that I don't write thrillers <laughs> because <laughs> most people think of thrillers as having more of a breakneck pace, right? People just can't Uh-oh. can't turn those pages fast enough. And I just, for the life of me, I just can't seem to do that. I'm much more of a slow-boil person, and I'll read some reviews, and pe- some folks are just disgusted. You know, this is <laughs> the slow boil. kind of hard to build suspense if you don't, you know, turn <laughs> it <laughs> Yeah. So um, but there are some horror writers that write great thrillers. Uh, Christopher Golden, his books are definitely thrillers and they're definitely horror. How do you find your
1: voice then when you write?
0: I'm sorry. I'm.
1: I'm sorry. What was the question? Oh, breakup. I was just going to say, how do you find your own voice when you write this story?
0: Isn't that I mean, that's. Sometimes I, you know, I, and a lot of writers probably feel this way, we go along all smug and happy and we think, i got a good voice. And then you read something <laughs> that just makes you realize, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> I could do a lot better than this. Um, so, whoops, sorry. Oh. Damn technology. Um, so, you know, I try to have it really come from the characters. I really do try to write character-driven fiction. But, um, I mean, I notice it, too, in some of my, my books, the voice might become a little um, redundant. It, it, for the historical ones, it probably has to do with the historical aspects, though, you know, that I try to make it a little more formal, because generally in the periods that I've written in so far, uh, you know, when people express themselves, it did tend to be a little bit more formal than than maybe how we express ourselves today.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. How do you, how did you pick like the Japanese internment and, and what makes you choose a subject to actually uh, go into a book?
0: Well, part of it comes down to discussions with the publisher, you know, after the hunger, which is a a reimagining of the story of the Donner party, which is just a fascinating story, but, you know, we were very lucky that book did very, very well. And so, um, Then the question was, okay, what big disaster are you going to write about next? (laughs) And that really, that hadn't been my intention. Um, So, you know, when you start, you know, flailing around looking at disasters, oh, that one's not big enough, or, you know, this one's in the wrong part of the world, because, you know, it has to be things that you think readers will want to read about. So the Titanic was like a natural, and when I found out that there was a second ship, a sister ship, another ship of the line that also sank, and that there was one woman who survived both of them, like I knew <laughs> that was the basis, right? That was a no-brainer. There's got to be a story there. But for the next one, it, it this is, you know, some people might not like hearing this, but it, it kind of happened because... Um, you know, publishers were saying that books that were too historical, you know, were losing audience and that m- the most popular books were either, you know, like the 20th century or the 20th century. So I started thinking about, you know, that time frame. I had just done one that was sort of based around World War One. So, you know, I'd always been interested in the internment. Like I said, when you have family and friends who went through it, you know, maybe you see signs of it that the average person who only knows about it from what they learned in history books doesn't see. And, you know, like all my historical horrors, they're meant to sort of show that that we're going through it again, right? <laughs> that it's it, The bad things aren't just something that happened in the past, but a lot of times we're reliving those same things, maybe because we didn't learn the lesson the first time. So if you look at what happened in the internment, I mean, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to see that we're seeing another resurgence of nationalism and the sort of fear of the other. And, you know, a lot of the bad things that we wish were sort of in America's past.
1: Mm. So when you when you write about the internment and stuff, how do you pick, like, do you actually find people that were involved in it and go through their story and put it into the book? Or is it something completely fictional?
0: Well, um, one thing I learned, or uh, that's evolved over time, you know, like with the hunger, the Donna party, it's I stayed very close to the history. So the vast majority of the characters were actual people in the wagon party. And then when I was doing the deep, Um, I kind of realized that, um, you know, I felt a little bad for putting some of those real people uh, through some of the things that you just need to have in order to create conflict and, you know, to set up the story that you want in fiction. So now for uh, the fervor, um, I I think there's one or two real life characters, all the rest of it, it's it's a completely, the story's been completely fictionalized. And I just feel more comfortable with that now. It'll be interesting to see how readers uh, react to it. But, you know, all of the underlying stuff is, you know, is taken from history. history, It's taken from stories that I heard from family members, from things that I've read. One, I really lucked into something. One of my neighbors, her family had all been interned at Minidoka in um, Idaho, and they kept everything. So she had this treasure trove of documentation, you know, yearbooks from the school, and I'm using air quotes here, at Minidoka and mimeos of, you know, the inter- in, the internal newspaper that they, you know, all kinds of stuff that you just couldn't get your hands on um, that she lent to me while I was doing the research for the book.
1: That was uh, pretty lucky then. <laughs>
0: very lucky, and I hated to give them back to her. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, move away. You can, she'll, she'll never find you. you we did
0: move her. away, but
1: <laughs> change, <laughs> change her back. name, right? Yeah, I, know. I mean, I mean is that even your real name? Yeah,
0: <laughs> it is. I would have made up a much easier name
1: spell <laughs> so Well, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, so when, when things are going on, like in the world that have been going on, um, does it, do you think it seeps into your writing when you, when you get into horror and we, even the red widow and stuff, uh, you know, with the pandemic and black lives matters and Trump and all the unrest the last four or five years, does that kind of um, seep into your writing? Do you think you get a little bit darker with it?
0: You know, I, I think that's inevitable. It was interesting in the hunger that was written during the 2016 presidential um, campaign and uh you know, after I'd handed it in, my editor said, you know, people here in the house who've been reading it have said that, you know, they just see these like little wisps of what's going on. And I felt bad about it at first. You know, you don't want to project into a historical event. But then when I did research about like what were the biggest um, issues of the time, you know, that's where I found that mirroring. mirroring that's a hard word to say. Um, <laughs> you know, what was going on with Manifest Destiny. You know, the fact that they were just American settlers felt that they were totally within their rights to march across land and, you know, settle on land that belonged to Native Americans and that belonged to Mexicans. You know, some of it was that's the whole reason um, that um, the disaster happened, actually, was because they believed this. Um, lawyer with political aspirations who was trying to get America to seize California as kind of the same way they ended up getting Texas. And, you know, he, he wrote that he had this cutoff that would take them magically to California. And so he was trying to drive Americans to California. I mean, like the mirrors to what was happening in the country at the time just smacked me between the eyes. And then I realized, oh, let's do this the easy way. Let's identify the issues that were going on at the time of the event and then, you know, shaped the theme of the book around that. And so that's how the deep, you know, is about huge uh, class disparity because that's what was going on at the end of the Gilded Age and women's rights. Women still didn't have the right to vote in America or the UK. So yeah, I'm having a field day with uh, internment of the Japanese during World War II.
1: Oh yeah. It's just amazing. The, uh, and I think a lot of people don't really understand what the history was. Time Enough time has passed where a lot of the younger generation probably uh, don't realize that it even yeah. existed. And,
0: I mean, a lot of it, ostensibly, you know, there's the war threat, but when you talk to the people who lived through it, a lot of it was, was economically driven. It was this, the fear of Asians. I mean, there was a lot of restrictions on their ability to immigrate to the country still. It, at that point, there there was a fair number of, of Asians, not just Japanese on the West Coast, but there was this economic thing. You know, a lot of people I know lost everything, lost farms, lost land, houses that are worth a lot of money today, uh, lost entire businesses, had you know left belongings with neighbors and the neighbors turned around and sold it. Um, you know, and reparations, there they, they were reparations. I forget if that was in the 70s or the 80s, but it was a drop in the bucket compared to what was actually taken away from these people who were American citizens. I mean, not all of them. They were first generation, but a lot of them were American citizens.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty depressing, you know. Um, well, let's talk. Uh, you have a website or a place that people can come find you.
0: Yes, it's my name, almakatsubooks.com, dot uh, com, because I lost Almakatsu oh, dot
1: com. <laughs> oh, the the real Almakatsu got that. Yeah, the real Almakatsu. <laughs> she still
0: has that website.
1: Well, why don't you take her out? Just call, make a phone call. <laughs> Isn't that like you know? Can't you just dial a number and say hey, you know, take that person? Not
0: just get your domain back. I'm finding that's trickier than you might think. Yeah.
1: Well, you know people. Come on.
0: <laughs> Come on. Yeah, they don't know who they messed with when they yeah. started. That's, no, that's right.
1: I'm just get on them, you know. Well, of course, we'll have that up on our website as well. And, uh, you know, so anybody that has something they want to say or um, if they want to send you some secret information, they can. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And,
0: and you're going to get me in trouble.
1: That's what I'm here for. That's what I do. That's what I do best, <laughs> you know. It you know it's funny because you know working in the in in a intelligence agency for a long time, you must see a lot of negativity. You know people that do a lot of bad things or hear about it. D- does that change? Did that change how you are with people? Do you trust people or are you scared of them? Like what? It, does it does it change you?
0: Scared of them, but probably because I live in America, um, and I'll explain that. So
1: because the, you have a gun.
0: No, no. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. No. Uh, living here in West Virginia, I might be the only person here without a gun.
1: But, um, no, me too. Me too. Okay. Thank
0: you. Yeah, we live in this interesting pocket on a hill in a couple of hills in West Virginia. But, um, no, when I said before that I work complex contingency operations, that means for a long time in my portfolio, it also included genocides and atrocities. Back in the 90s, which was like the big age of genocides and atrocities, you know, you'd wake up one morning and you'd find out that some people had slaughtered 10,000 people overnight, you know, like, Just really makes you see the worst in people. And when you work those kinds of issues, you do go through like a depression for several years after it. So I've kind of come out of it now. But yeah, for a while, you know, I really just I understood the worst that people were actually capable of. It's starting to fade a little bit from my mind. So yeah, it can it can be uh, you know that's that's unfortunately every everybody who works in that field ends up having PTSD for a while a couple of years afterwards.
1: Yeah, I noticed that because I've worked with a lot of cops and a lot of people through <laughs> doing true crime and stuff like that. And you know, if you're out for lunch, they're looking at everybody like they're eyeing down the place. They they've got two two routes of escape. They've got uh, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, it just comes natural.
0: Yeah, I would say I'm probably not as bad as that but <laughs> for a while it does make you know like people would gripe about you know their crummy day oh they this the waitress put the wrong condiments on my hamburger and you know I <laughs> wow, because you know is that the worst thing in your life right now you're really lucky
1: yeah do you think people would people really be scared if they knew more about intelligence what really went on
0: i hope not scared i mean You know, there's a lot of checks and balances in the system. It's not like a bunch of crazy rogue people. And when I say I worked, you know, I was an analyst. We looked at uh, genocides and mass atrocities that were taking place. Somebody asked me once, they thought I committed them. No, (laughs) that is is not what your government does and really, really should stop, you know, reading those QAnon things. But um, QAnon's not true? <laughs> Do not even get me started. It, you know, that's the scary thing that there could yeah. be that many people in this country yep.
1: who yeah. Well, QAnon's going to be on the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with with Alex Jones. They're going to tell us about, you know, what's going on in the world.
0: You're having Alex Jones on your show? No, no, no. Oh, nah. thank God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I had my 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 run-in with him years ago, so yeah. He doesn't like me too much, but I'm small potatoes for him. He's, he's got Bill Gates to deal with. So,
0: right. And <laughs> of, let's not forget that.
1: Yeah, no. Um, well, it's certainly been interesting. I, I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, uh, you've done it all. I mean, what have we learned? We've learned, we've learned about the Red Widow and, and CIA and uh, how Alma wants to do some pot as soon as possible <laughs> you know
0: maybe people start mailing that to me
1: yeah oh, you go. <laughs> go, for go for it you know it's uh you mail it where it's legal that's all they can say if, if it's illegal don't mail it okay but uh no it's been it's been it's been quite a bit we've learned a lot and um well thank
0: we, you it's been a lot of fun
1: yeah and we wish you a lot of success and and uh hopefully um yeah it goes well for you with these uh these uh these kind of cia kind of books I, I, you know it's it's a really interesting field and, and you're going to be a tv star too
0: well believe it or not i'm an executive producer and i know nothing about tv so yeah. they are very kindly uh taking me by the hand and putting up with my stupid questions and everything it's fascinating though getting to learn uh another business at this age um, that's the part that I like I'm sure you all feel the same way it's getting to learn new things that, that kind of keep the job
1: interesting certainly is and producing uh, a films pretty pretty exciting because it's it's really like witnessing it from the inside um.
0: how yeah. <laughs> the sausage is made as they say yeah yeah that's right
1: you get to see what's <laughs> in the sausage and sometimes that's not so pretty but <laughs> well anyway I appreciate it our guest has been uh, Alma katsu and the book we're focusing on is red widow it's in your bookstore today it'll be up on the website thank you for being here
0: thank you guys so much
1: thanks alma thanks alma to find out more about our show guests or to listen to past shows from our
0: archive please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me
1: well Good night. This has
0: been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,
1: Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests